Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Marcella Runell Hall. She's Director of Internal Relations for the Of Many Institute for Multi-Faith Leadership, co-director of the Center for Spiritual Life at New York University, and she's coming to Utah State University. We'll be talking about religious pluralism. Consider this quote from Marcella Runell Hall. Despite the significance of religion in public life in the U.S., American school curricula generally fail to address religious pluralism. This omission is creating problems that are compounded by increasing Islamophobia. We'll talk about that. And consider this provocative quote that uh, Ms. Hall quotes and from New York uh, University professor David Kirkland. I've argued that you can learn just as much about language and literature from reading Tupac as you can from Shakespeare. And indeed, Marcella Runell Hall teaches teachers how to teach using hip-hop. We'll talk about religious pluralism, hip-hop, and race relations on the program today, and you're welcome to join us via email to upraxcess at gmail.com. Marcella Runell Hall is coming to Utah State University on Wednesday, October 16th, an event at 5.30 in the afternoon, and it's called How to Jumpstart Your Campus-Wide Interfaith Movement. Be a buffet dinner served with USU, and the uh, uh, talk will take place in the Walnut Room of the Marketplace in the Taggart Student Center. It's presented by Interfaith House of USU Housing's Living Learning Community, College of Humanities and Social Sciences, and USU's Religious Studies Program. Marcella Rennell Hall, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We appreciate you taking the time. Let me start with uh, religious pluralism. This is sure. this is interesting. You wrote a paper on this and and your center uh, teaches how to uh, how to get uh, teaching about religion into the schools this is something i believe teachers school districts have been reticent to tackle you just sort of avoid it mhm yeah well i mean i think that there's two two kind of things at play here one is that i work in an institution of higher education so i think that higher education in general has a lot more flexibility and freedom particularly private institutions, such as NYU, where I work, um, to think about, talk about, you know, figure out how we want to express and allow students to express views and, and services as it relates to religion and spirituality. That said, really, the the idea that I think is, is most pressing and useful in schools is the idea of religious literacy. Um, and Stephen Potero is a scholar. He's written a lot about this. He has a whole book on religious literacy. And just the idea that there's a lot that we don't know about our own faith traditions or other people's faith traditions. So it's a basic concept of, of literacy versus anything else. You know, not proselytizing, not trying to, you know, promote one religion over another, but just having some basic awareness um, of the tenets, the history the things that, that really motivate people to be religious. So I would say those are kind of two different things. The idea of religious pluralism and religious literacy um, probably need to be separated from the onset to understand how they fit into education. So you're saying if you if you promote religious literacy, that people could accept that? You were just learning about another religion? Yeah, I think religious literacy helps us understand better whether we identify as people of faith or not. It just helps us understand how the role that religion plays in society. Um, just as any other literacy can be, you know, um, argued to be beneficial in that it increases knowledge or awareness. I mean, I think that that's, that's a fundamental element of, of an educated person, of a liberal education, of, you know, um, of higher learning. You know, the idea that we can become educated. So I would say that that's, that's actually what's really important to me, is getting that concept out there. 
Um, and if religious pluralism is a result of that, then I think that that's great. But I think that the literacy part is actually a, a, a starting point. Uh, and I think some, you know, some districts would even be, <laughs> even be. I, I think districts and and K through twelve has been burned by court cases and 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 such, and they're just really touchy about this. Uh, have you had success absolutely, in getting yeah. getting? Uh, absolutely true. Yeah, uh, have you had success getting uh, some of these programs into K through twelve schools? No, that's not my audience that mm-hmm. I that I work with. Um, the K twelve audience really only peripherally in different places as I've, you know, kind of come up in my own scholarly work, have I had the opportunity to work with K-12 teachers on this particular topic. Um, so, no, this really the programs that we're pioneering and the idea of multi-faith leadership and the things we're doing um, right now are really in the context of higher education, not in K-12. Tell me about uh, the, the higher education. What uh, uh, First of all, I'm interested in a, a center like this, a center for spiritual life. I don't know if all colleges have this. <laughs> they don't all have it, actually. So we're we're quite proud that we do have it. Um, but increasingly, more and more, um, you know, colleges and universities are coming up with ways to address the religious and spiritual needs of students coming to campus. You know, we are seeing students, um, you know, coming to campus and expecting that they're going to be able to practice the tradition that they've practiced at home or that they're going to have access to religious services or, you know, um, different opportunities to discuss issues of faith, you know, in a college environment, just as they would any other aspect of diversity in higher education. Um, and higher education has always been a leader in being able to, you know, provide the space for students to have those kind of more complex conversations in, and and also to learn about, you know, their, themselves, college students learn about themselves. So certainly our center, we think it's it's innovative and it's incredibly empowering and powerful to see something like this in New York City uh, because New York City is so vast <laughs> and there's so much going on and our university is very large. So having a Center for Spiritual Life right in the middle of all of it is, is really quite um, amazing to see. But there are universities all over in much smaller places and with less heterogeneous populations that are also embarking on this and finding ways to have multiple services and, and multiple traditions represented in the same space. Do you Have you had conflicts? Uh, did people, you know, come to campus, uh, they're first of all wanting their own you know, uh, opportunity to their own services. Do you do you mm-hmm. uh, sit down and have dialogue, one religion to the, to another? Absolutely. I mean, I think we, to, to the second part of your question, we, you know, we try to accommodate as much as we can. I mean, what we are seeing right now is at NYU, we have about 400 registered student clubs and organizations, and about 60 of them identify as being religious or spiritual from multiple traditions. And additionally, we have about 60 volunteer chaplains who work with our students who also, you know, work with us in the Center for Spiritual Life. So there are multiple Protestant traditions represented, you know, multiple um, opportunities for students to get involved or learn about other faiths, but we certainly have representation from Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, um, and secular humanist who kind of represents atheists and agnostics, and then other smaller traditions are also represented in, in various forms. We've had Baha'i student clubs, um, you know, different clubs that have come up that have been reflective of what the students are interested in. So 
we really do a lot of our programming and services based on what students are bringing to us in terms of what they would like to see on campus and how we can best meet their needs. In this paper, you talk about Islamophobia. I was interested to uh, to note that uh, there was even an increase in Islamophobia uh, in the years after 9-11. You would have expected an increase right after 9-11, but uh, it seemed to increase in the years following. I don't know if you were at NYU in, you know, in the aftermath of, uh, of 9-11. <laughs> I was, actually, yeah. Um, I was there at NYU as a graduate student and then in my first full-time job immediately after 9-11. Um, and I actually left NYU for, for a short time to get my doctorate and came back. And so my history with the university spans about 15 years. Um, so I was definitely there during that very critical time right after 9-11. What was the atmosphere um, on, on NYU campus? I mean, I think that for NYU, we were so... We, proximity was everything, you know? I mean, we had students that had just moved in as first-year students to residence halls that were right there, um, you know, on Water Street and, you know, near the the area where everything happened near the World Trade Center. So our, our first priority was really getting people, students, young, brand-new students, to safe places where they could, you know, figure out... <laughs> Um, how to contact their parents or, you know, what they were going to do for the next few weeks as all those buildings were shut down. Um, so it was really a, a unifying time. I mean, it was incredibly moving to see everybody coming together and really supporting each other. Um, there wasn't a whole lot that I witnessed right in that aftermath that I would consider to be Islamophobic. It was really survival um, mode. But as things progressed, you know, um, I think beyond that, that's when it started to, um, I think, happen, you know, that we started to see more tension, you know, in the city and on campus. But but I can tell you that what we had the unique opportunity to, to do at NYU is we had a student, a student leader in the Islamic Center who went on to become an imam and an incredibly powerful um, presence and leader um, who really helped with the healing um, of the student body and, and really the city of New York. He's also the imam and chaplain for the NYPD, and his name is Khalid Latif, and I work very closely with him now. He's the founder of the Islamic Center at NYU. And so having him there, having had the knowledge of the student community and then becoming a religious leader really helped to create peace and dialogue and, and really good role modeling. Um, and he has a fantastic relationship with our rabbi, um, Yehuda Sarna, and they're the co-founders of the of Many Institute with, with myself and Yael Shai and our other colleagues. How do uh, how does how does the Muslim community do do outreach? I I know that uh, you know in, in in some cases you have an event like nine eleven and then you hear about other attacks and and I think people know that it's a very very small minority of mm-hmm. uh, you know of of this uh, the pe- adherence to the religion and uh, moderate uh, Muslims you know rebuke their their brethren there but uh, it it can give rise to uh, people just smearing the entire religion as as violent. Well, I think that's a great question. It goes back to kind of the first point that we started with around why religious literacy is important um, and understanding, you know, the the basic tenets of Islam are about peace and are, you know, Islam is the second largest religion in the world um, after Christianity and is the, you know, fastest growing religion in the United States right now. So I think that, you know, with the numbers, the sheer numbers, the amount of people 
who identify as being practicing Muslims is huge worldwide and, and certainly more significantly here in the U.S. So I think that it, it behooves all of us to have a better working understanding of Islam so that we understand that these few people who are out there perpetuating crimes are not reflective of an entire religion. They're reflective of a particular ideology that, you know, is certainly gone awry, mm. <laughs> seriously awry. Seems like one good outcome in the inner, inner, uh, aftermath of 9-11, uh, you saw uh, community interfaith movements springing up. There were there were a few in Utah here, including Logan, where Utah State University is uh, is located. I don't know if that happened. Uh, if you are aware that happened on campuses as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 certainly did happen, and I think that that's you know one of the the best possible outcomes from tragedy is when there can be you know, new paradigms, new relationships forged, new ways of doing things, new levels of awareness. I mean, I think that that's, you know, crisis necessitates that, <laughs> that we, you know, get to the next level so that we can solve problems differently. So absolutely, I think there's been a lot of positive that has happened um, that has really given way for, you know, young people particularly to have a different way of being in the world and a different way of imagining what this multi-faith, interfaith movement can look like. When you uh, talk about, you know, on campus, and I think students perhaps are more accepting than, than perhaps some communities would be, do you find religions or uh, faith traditions that uh, people encounter that, uh, that they, on campus they say, oh, that's just, that's just too out there. I, I, can't, I can't accept that one. You know, I mean, I think that, that I'm sure that that happens. I'm sure that they're, in, you know, on smaller scale, individual students are making choices all the time about, you know, which groups or events or, you know, things they want to get involved in. I, I think that for me, as, you know, both an administrator and a, a teacher, it's important to just provide space to have those conversations so that, you know, if somebody does feel like, a belief system or an ideology is out there or something that they are questioning, that there's a space to talk about that and ask questions, you know, and get to the heart of what it is that they think is kind of out there. But I mean, in general, New York is such a complex and vibrant place. And there's so many choices all the time that our students are making that I think that, you know, the university for us is just a microcosm of that. So students are, are pretty well equipped to figure out how to navigate, um, you know, which things they want to get involved in and give time to, which things they don't, which things they want to know more about, <laughs> which things they're not interested in. I mean, just as much as we're seeing a resurgence in religious students, we also have a huge number of students who identify as spiritual and not religious. Um, and they're not really coming from a background of having a particular tradition. They're more interested in kind of broader ideas about spirituality and meditation and yoga and, and, you know, the interfaith conversation for them a lot of times is based on values and principles as opposed to doctrine or, you know, specific religious ideologies. So we, we have to make space for them, too. <laughs> so there's a lot. <clears throat> there's a lot going on. <laughs> so you're confirming a trend that we are hearing about, pe- uh, students, younger people identifying as spiritual, not religious. I wonder what, what you think is behind that. Well, I mean, I think that there's there's a couple different things behind it. I mean, I my 
my educated guess <laughs> is that a lot of that has to do with how different people were raised in their families. Um, you know, many many students grow up in families where there's more than one religion that's practiced or parents have come from, you know, uh, a religious background themselves maybe, but have decided not to keep practicing that. So they weren't, didn't grow up with something salient in terms of their, their religious ideology. So I think that's part of it. But I think there are also students that could have been raised in a very religious environment and get to college and decide for that period of time, you know, they, they want to be, you know, questioning mode and they want to be trying to figure things out for themselves. So they don't necessarily want to over identify or self identify um, as being, you know, part of a particular religious tradition. I think there's also an interest in bigger questions and spirituality, sort of a, an umbrella for that, you know, these bigger questions of who do you want to be in the world and what's important to you. And that, that values question seems to be very pressing for a lot of millennials and, you know, this, kind of younger generation. If you just joined us, we are talking with uh, Marcella Brunel Hall. Uh, she's Director of Internal Relations for the Av Many Institute for Multi-Faith Leadership and Co-Director of the Center for Spiritual Life at New York University. She's also a clinical instructor at the Silver School of Social Work at NYU. You're welcome to join this conversation at uh, upr.org, uh, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. You could call us at 1-800-826-1495 as well. And we are, um, actually, Dr. Hall is uh, coming to uh, Utah. Uh, this is sponsored by the Interfaith House of USU Housing's Learning Living Community, the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, and USU's Religious Studies Program. It's 5.30 in the afternoon on Wednesday, October 16th, and her talk will be called How to Jumpstart Your Campus-Wide Interfaith Movement. We'll talk about that and uh, maybe some, some issues that would be particular to Utah. And we'll talk about hip-hop, teaching hip-hop which uh, Dr. Hall talks about as well. All that coming following the break. Utah Public Radio's fall membership drive gets underway October 3rd. Your contribution now will help in a special way. Rocky Mountain Power will contribute $5,000 to UPR if we meet our membership goal of $80,000 by October 12th. Become a member or renew your financial support at upr.org. Click on Support the Station. Thank you. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Dr. Carl Breitenbach, practicing evidence-based family medicine at Basin Clinic in Vernal since 1987, with emphasis in complete family health, including obstetric and pediatric care. Information is at basinclinic.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Dr. Marcella Runel Hall, Director of Internal Relations for the Avmani Institute for Multi-Faith Leadership and Co-Director of the Center for Spiritual Life at New York University. She's coming to Utah State University on Wednesday, October 16th. There's an event at 5.30 in the afternoon running until 7. Uh, there's a dinner involved, and you can find out more about this on the uh, USU website. Um, the lecture be given, it'll be called How to Jumpstart Your Campus-Wide Interfaith Movement. 
Uh, so, um, Marcelo Noel Hall, that's where I'd like to uh, take a look at maybe the issues to, to Utah. NYU would probably not fit in, in this uh, category, but of course, in Utah, there is a dominant faith, the Mormon Church, uh, a, a faith which would be a minority in most other places, but is a large majority in Utah. And of course, in places like that, where there is a dominant faith, there probably are some considerations when you're doing interfaith. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there are considerations in any space when you're doing interfaith. It just depends on the the context, right? So context is everything. That's what I tell my students all the time. You know, to really consider what are the the goals or what are the, the big ideas that are trying to be accomplished through interfaith work. Certainly, yes, in a place like NYU, it is it is more pluralistic by nature because of geographic location, because of New York City, because of the amount of students, you know, all of that. But at the same time, there are considerations. There are certainly a large majority of students who don't identify as being religious. And while there are many groups of students at NYU, for example, we believe we have the largest number of both Muslim and Jewish students at one university together in the world. Um, So those are considerations in and of themselves. (laughs) So I think that that's important to note that, yes, you know, there there is certainly a consideration in Utah around Mormonism, but there are considerations in each location that, you know, need to be addressed and need to be thought about. Um, and, and, and it really depends on what the goal of an interface project would be, you know, or what an interface dialogue would be and who, who would be in that dialogue. Um, so I think that that's, you know, something, something that we're going to talk about when I come out there. <laughs> what does it look like in Utah? Mm-hmm. Um, what are the considerations? What uh, what are the goals usually? What are, there are probably some that are common to any interfaith movement that starts. Yes. Well, I mean, I think one big thing is that service tends to be a tenant or a priority in many faith traditions. And service work, service projects, the idea of, you know, doing service together, um, you know, in the aftermath of uh, a tragedy or a natural disaster or in a community that is under-resourced and underserved. Those are opportunities for many different faith groups to come together um, and feel and, and believe that they are doing the work that they are called to do. Um, so oftentimes that's where we start at NYU. We see service trips and service opportunities as a place to really start to build relationships um, and to have students think about, you know, what does it mean to do service, um, you know, with people who are possibly eating different foods or praying at different times or, you know, have a different understanding of how they make meaning of the world. Um, that's usually a, a fundamental place to start. Hmm. I want to, to get back to uh, the place where we started, um, mm-hmm. pluralism. I wondered, yeah. uh, what's your definition of pluralism, and, and why is that important to democracy? <laughs> that's a great question. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the short end of it is that I think that pluralism is really about giving space for there to be different worldviews simultaneously. <laughs> you know, the idea that, that we can have different worldviews and a different way of making meaning of things, but accept that there is a difference, um, as opposed to, you know, being forced to think that there's only one correct worldview or that there's only one correct way of, of meaning-making. I think that that's the difference between a democracy and other ways of doing things, that we get to be, you know, um, 
somewhat at least uh, clear that we have different viewpoints, but we still are coexisting, still citizens of, you know, the same the same democracy, still participating um, in our various ways, even though our belief system around particular issues may be different. And we, uh, I think we have a ways to go, don't we? To, to, to get to <laughs> oh, we certainly do, obviously, <laughs> right now, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're kind of shut down. <laughs> the government, yeah. I mean, we are not role modeling the the um the the belief system that we can all coexist in and find ways of doing this um effectively you know we're not doing it very well right now I'm thinking specifically of of uh, immigration uh debate that uh, seem you know heated heated debate and and some are uh, are seeing a threat on what they call the American culture yeah. Um, and and it's uh, you know it, it's, there's kind of a dividing line between those who see uh, the immigrants, specifically Hispanic immigrants, as other and dangerous, and those who are more welcoming. Uh, there are other arguments, you know, economic and, and such, but it seems to be a, a cultural um, and pluralism argument that's going on. I, I would agree. I mean, I think there's there are remnants of that argument in different aspects of society, and certainly, you know, it is front and center in the immigration conversation. You're absolutely right. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about, um, you You have a, a couple of books, or you've contributed to a couple of books on race, and mm-hmm. it seems like maybe you're you're making your living by um, helping people talk about things they're very uncomfortable talking about. Uh, and race is certainly, in this country, we just have a hard time talking about race. Yeah. We certainly do. <laughs> we certainly do. I mean, we. I think that you know, there's there's a great PBS documentary that I use to teach a lot, and I've written lesson plans about. It's called "Race: The Power of an Illusion," um, and it's a three part series. And it it is one of the best teaching tools for kind of summarizing the way that race was socially constructed in the United States and all the meaning that has been attached to race in terms of socioeconomic status and, you know, real estate law and education and just so much of our policy and, and practice for so long was tied to race. And so using that tool or using, you know, pieces of that history um, can oftentimes really illuminate why it's so hard for us to talk about now because it's, it is beyond just, you know, you know, the individual conversation. It's beyond just, you know, but I'm a good person, but I'm not racist. You know, it's it's so much more complex than that um, because race has been woven into so much of our policy, which then impacts people's entire lives and the next generation, you know, and the generation after. Um, so I think that that's partly what makes it incredibly difficult is it's a lot to comprehend and a lot to tease out and, and oftentimes... We haven't been taught the history or the, we don't have all the information and it's not clear why it's so hard. We only know that it's hard and, and maybe sometimes some of us want to avoid that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talking about things that are difficult and sort of just try to deal with what we have in the present. But the present doesn't make a whole lot of sense if we don't have a good understanding of the history. Uh, tell us again the, the series. It's called Race, The Power of an Illusion. Okay. Um, and, and I think we... One reason we have trouble to even getting started with these conversations, uh, you know, maybe as a white person, I think, well, I don't, I don't, know, if, uh, I don't know if I even have standing to start this, <laughs> this conversation. And if I'm going to right. talk with a, with a black person, for example, I'm going to be really uncomfortable as to what I think their reaction is going to be. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that's part of the, 
the, the situation that we've inherited is there's a lot of fear of saying the wrong thing or feeling like certain people, you know, have have more ownership or more vested interest in trying to come up with, you know, solutions or trying to come up with, you know, new ways of doing things. I, I personally come from the standpoint that we're all invested and that the idea that, you know, we, we're all part of the solution the same way that in many ways we're all part of the problem. Mm. <laughs> so I think that it is on, on everybody, um, you know, to participate and to figure out what you can offer to the conversation. And sometimes just the starting point of being honest that you don't know what, what it is that you can contribute or you don't feel like you have any knowledge base um, can really be an, an opening for a different conversation because it's a lot more authentic than pretending that there isn't a problem or that we don't have any um, remnants or, or contemporary issues of race. I mean, I think a lot of people wanted to believe you know, after President Obama was elected that, you know, we had in fact crossed over into a new era that would be post-racial. But that's where I go back to the idea that, you know, if we don't understand the history and we don't understand the policy implications and all the ways that race has been connected to so many of our resources, it, it would be easy to think that just the election would be enough. But, you know, then we saw just a few short years later with Trayvon Martin and other things that have come up, we're still obviously grappling um, with a lot of inequity and a lot of hard, hard conversations that still need to be had. Yeah, it seems like different people are living very different lives with very different experience. That was brought out. We did a program here in the in the aftermath of the Trayvon Martin case, and um, had you know had some uh, some black people give their experiences, and they, you know and it, and it you know came out these these experiences you hear about, which as I guess white people you don't think about that much of of always being on guard and and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, yes, and, and so so much of that is very contemporary. I mean, that's what's happening right now. That's not fifty years ago. <laughs> you know, I mean, that is right now. But 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 it is, um, in, for many people, it is a, a very different lived experience on a day to day basis. Um, and you know, we use a pedagogy and, and a way of teaching about race. Sometimes we we use the term microaggressions. These sort of little things that are cumulative. They're not you know, um, the broad, major, big events that you might hear about on the news or the, the daily little things that can add up and really start to create tension and animosity and stress. So you're saying a good way to start, at least to teach this, is is to teach the history. That'd be, that'd be one starting point. It, it absolutely is. I think the history is actually liberating for anyone, no matter which kind of um, identity or, or, you know, experience they're coming from, um, because the history is very liberating in that it, it shows this is complicated and feels difficult because it's always been complicated. <laughs> you know, I think that that actually can help students to, to make meaning where people or adults or teachers or parents or anybody who's trying to figure it out. Like, why does it feel so heavy? Why does it feel like it's so hard to, to move past? Um, and we start to really look at people's, you know, net worth and, you know, where they've lived and how their families have been able to pass on wealth or not because of different policies that impacted people being able to get mortgages and, or not. You know, I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's just so much there that really clarifies what a lot of the, the root causes are of institutional racism and, you know, and, and to many cultural racism. 
Are you seeing any changes in the students you talk to in, the, in this conversation about race? Is it can you can you give me some hope or maybe depress me here? But I don't know. Are there changes? <laughs> I I absolutely have hope. I am an eternal optimist, and I will say this: I think that you know the connection between spirituality and the social movements and where people can find strength and solidarity in in having a a spiritual tradition that gives them hope and gives them understanding and gives them meaning-making across difference um, actually really helps in the conversation around race. They're certainly not mutually exclusive. There are plenty of people who are activists around race that, you know, wouldn't necessarily consider themselves to be spiritual or religious. But, but I do see a lot of hope there in students who are looking for a spiritual connection to all of this and are able to find some kind of solace or, you know, um, peace in that in, in order to be able to stay in the conversation, even when it's difficult around race. So I have, I have an incredible amount of hope um, that we are, we are turning a corner and moving to, to a better place um, with, with younger people who are able to kind of hold all of this um, in, in a different way. And, and have a more difficult conversation in the long term, which can then impact policy and institutions and practices and beliefs. If you just uh, tuned in, we're talking with Marcella Runel Hall, uh, Director of Internal Relations for the Of Many Institute for Multifaith Leadership and Co-Director for the Center for Spiritual Life at uh, New York University. She's coming to Utah. That event will be happening Wednesday, October 16th, 5.30 p.m. to 7 p.m., find out more about this at uh, Utah State University website. Uh, and uh, her talk will be called How to Jumpstart Your Campus-Wide Interfaith Movement. It'll be happening with dinner as well. And uh, you can uh, contact Bonnie Glasscoffin uh, at Utah State University for more information on this. Um, this is presented by the Interfaith House of USU's Housing's Living Learning Community, the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, and USU's Religious Studies Program. I want to uh, talk before we close, Marcella Runa Hall, uh, about hip hop. This is uh, fascinating. Um, this you're you're uh, teaching. In fact, your book. Let me uh, scroll over here to the book, Hip Hop Education Guidebook. And uh, yes. you, you say that this is being taught more and more in colleges and uh, more and more in K through 12. Why, why hip hop? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I would say from the standpoint first that I think popular culture can be a really incredible, incredible, powerful teaching tool with young people. Um, I, and I think popular culture across the board, you know, it doesn't have to be just hip hop culture can be really useful in engaging difficult subject matter. And I think that it captures attention in ways that perhaps more traditional, you know, pedagogy might not. Um, that said, I think that hip hop, you know, coming um, as a cultural and, and activist arts movement, you know, um, coming out of New York City in the 1970s, really primarily started by black and Latino young people who were looking for an outlet to discuss and, you know, um, explore and examine issues of race and class and, and difference, it has roots in a, in a particular place that really makes it useful for these conversations. And so for a long time, um, hip-hop culture has presented, not exclusively, but many artists have been able to present um, different narratives about the American experience and about, you know, these issues, these, these hard, complex issues around race and class. 
And so I think that it's very rich. There is a lot of rich narrative and a lot of um, storytelling in hip hop that might not always be, you know, found in, in other pop culture uh, mediums. So from that vantage point, I think that it can be uh, particularly effective, both because of the historical piece, but because of the relevance to a lot of young people today. What about, I'm sure you've heard this pushback, um, there, there is hip-hop that has, and from some people's perspective, you know, a lot of hip-hop has violence, drug culture, misogyny. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's, there's many schools of thought on this. Um, some, some kind of hip-hop purists and activists would say, then it's not hip-hop. You know, if it's, if it's all of that, then it's really just rap music and it's really just commercial rap music that's been commodified and, you know, has lost its intrinsic social justice lens and value um, that that was there from the beginning. There are others who would say the same artist may have a song that could be incredibly illuminating um, and used in a classroom setting and could also have a song or several songs that are, you know, party songs or, you know, songs that you wouldn't necessarily find a whole lot of educational value in. There's many perspectives about how and when and if, you know, hip-hop should always be used or can always be used. Um, I have a fairly open mind about that. I think that it really depends on the the teacher's knowledge base. I think if it's too much of a stretch to try to use a lot of different artists and perhaps just introducing one or two artists that, you know, are really well-vetted and that we know um, there's a lot of value sociological value to what they're they're talking about, um, then that's a good place to start. You know, but if you are, in fact, of the hip-hop generations and you feel like you know enough to bring in different artists or, or feel confident enough to allow students to bring in artists, I think that there can be a really rich dialogue in that. And I think there's a lot of, of a lot of role or weight that a teacher can bring if they are able to have that conversation with students and critically analyze what parts of this are really speaking to you and what parts of this might be detrimental to how you see yourself in the world or how you see other people in your community or, you know, the, the idea that it's, it's all bad or all good, I think, is, is probably something to stay away from, you know, the binary. There's, there's lots of good there, lots of rich dialogue and history, and then there's also lots of stuff that, you know, might not be that helpful. You quote, uh, in, a, in a paper on this, you quote NYU professor David Kirkland, he says, uh-huh. I've argued that you can learn just as much about language and literature from reading Tupac as you can from Shakespeare. The themes and conflicts present in Shakespeare are all present in hip hop. And I can mm-hmm. hear some English professors hyperventilating right now. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, well, it, I mean, again, it goes back to how, how much knowledge, you know, what is your knowledge base about Tupac from the start? I mean, there's been so much written about Tupac's work now. You really could teach an entire poetry class um, using, you know, hip-hop and using Tupac's work and, and really be able to have some good conversations about themes of, you know, jealousy or betrayal or heartbreak or greed or, you know, use of violence. I mean, there are a lot of transferable themes, but it takes the work of knowing how to really translate what you're reading into that literary canon and vice versa. So you have to be able to be well-versed in both um, to be able to deliver that canon in a way that students will still learn what they need to learn as opposed to replacing, you know, um, you know, a Tupac lyric with a Shakespearean lyric. You know, I mean, I think that there's, 
there's a way that you can teach both if you really are able to navigate um, between between the different bodies of work. And he's an expert at it. David Kirkland is, is really an incredibly brilliant scholar. And I guess you would have to be in, immersed in that world. You'd probably have to be listening to hip-hop on your own, enjoying it. Uh, of your own accord, right? Or or can you uh, can you study yeah, sure. it? Sure, that's it? certainly one way to do it. But I think that there's there's a lot of professional development opportunities out there now. I mean, I think that University of Madison, Wisconsin, has been offering a summer teacher institute um, on how to use hip hop in the classroom for the last five years. There's been several conferences and curriculum guides that have come out. So there's there's really quite a few resources now for teachers who might not have grown up listening to hip hop or might not even have the time, (laughs) you know, right now to to sort of get caught up. If they just want to bring in different pieces, different artists, different elements to kind of mix up their, their pedagogy. Um, There really are, there really are quite a few resources and, and lots of great results of students feeling, you know, very engaged and um, more invested in the process. But again, that's the popular culture part can be transferable. If students are more interested in another subculture or another subgenre and a teacher feels like some of that can be brought in to illustrate particular, you know, universal themes, I, I, I'm all for that. I think that that's a good way to get students invested um, in the learning process. We're, uh, we've reached the end of our time. Marcella Runel Hall <laughs> has been our guest, and uh, she is Director of Internal Relations for the Avmedi Institute for Multi-Faith Leadership and Co-Director of the Center for Spiritual Life at New York University. She's coming to Utah State University. That'll be on Wednesday, October, 17, October 16th, I should say, 5.30 in the afternoon. Uh, that's uh, an event at the in the Walnut Room of the Marketplace in uh, Taggart Student Center, event presented by the Interfaith House of USU Housing's Living Learning Community, the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, and USU's Religious Studies Program. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure, and I'm looking forward to coming out there. And uh, coming up tomorrow... Uh, we're going to have result to several interviews uh, that I did at the recent Extension Sustainability Summit in Park City. Some interesting conversations on sustainability, on agriculture, water, air, um, and the environment, climate change. And uh, those conversations will be coming up tomorrow on Access Utah. For Bennett Purser, my producer, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. This is Linda Kirvin for Bridgerland Audubon Society. What links this melodious thrush of northern Utah forests with a hawk that soars over farms, rangelands, and prairies in western North America? Both Swainson's thrush and Swainson's hawk are named after the 17th century self-taught British naturalist William Swainson. He was a contemporary of John James Audubon. Like Audubon, Swainson was a passionate solo collector, taxidermist, and skilled illustrator of birds. Unlike Audubon, Swainson's single intensive field expedition took him far to the south, sailing to eastern Brazil. During his two-year stay, he amassed a collection of 20,000 animal specimens, including 760 bird skins. Swainson ultimately named 20 species new to science.
Although he never visited North America, he nonetheless co-authored an encyclopedic four-volume treatise about North America's fauna. Swainson's hawk and Swainson's thrush share another similarity, this one biological. Both birds migrate long distances to escape winter's cold and hunger. Swainson's thrush winters in balmy tropical forests of South America. Swainson's hawk soars farther, all the way to the arid Argentine pampas. There, this large, slender hawk dines mostly on big flying insects, particularly grasshoppers and even dragonflies. Swainson's hawks migrate in groups, often along regular corridors. Every September, Hawkwatch volunteers and hardy birders have reported hundreds of Swainson's hawks rocketing past the Wellsville Mountains of northern Utah, flying amid several thousand migrating raptors of all kinds. Birds migrate to avoid the snow-cold and lean times of northern winters. Migration poses natural risks, of course. But hawkwatch ornithologists also suspect that widespread use of two deadly organophosphate insecticides on Argentine crops kills many insect-eating Swainson's hawks. The plow, pavement, and subdivisions have also reduced this hawk's historic northern range, especially in California. In addition, foolish people still shoot this relatively tame hawk, not caring that its diet of rodents and grasshoppers benefits farmers and ranchers. Professional disappointments drove the quarrelsome William Swainson south as well, to New Zealand, where he died in anonymity. His namesakes, Swainson's hawk and Swainson's thrush, live on to cross and recross the equator in pursuit of perpetual summer and the feast it provides. This is Linda Curvin for Bridgerland Audubon Society. Wild About Utah is a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And the Cache Valley Center for the Arts presents World Blues, featuring the Taj Mahal, Vusi Mala Salela, and Fredericks Brown, Tuesday, October 15th and Wednesday, October 16th at 7.30 p.m. in the Ellen Eccles Theater. Information at cachearts.org or 435-752-0026. And Crown Brothers Artisan Bread, located at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD 1, 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD 1, 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD 1, 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD 1, 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD 1, 91.5 Logan. Thanks for listening to uh, Access Utah on Utah Public Radio. Tom Williams, I'm executive producer and host of the program. Um, the former producer of the program, Shalane smith joins me. Hi, Tom. It's great to be here with you this morning. You've moved on to other duties, but I'm sure yes. you still have a soft place in your heart oh, for this I program. Oh, I sure do. I sure do. And, you know, it's a quite a time-intensive program to produce. And 
each and every one of the staff in some way have a part in helping with Access Utah. It's our signature program. We hope that you appreciate the topics that we bring to you. We try to bring you timely topics, topics that affect your everyday life, and it's a program that we hope you think is worthwhile. We'd love to hear from you, your maybe topic suggestions, 1-800-826-1495. We bring the program to you, of course, uh, five days a week uh, throughout the year, and on Fridays it's uh, Sherry Quinn with the science question but the rest of the days it's uh, i'm here in this chair and enjoying being with you um and now's the time when we come to you and ask uh, do you like the program and do you feel that it's worth supporting uh, we uh, would love to see some support for access utah specifically uh, so now's the time while you're uh, getting ready to uh, tune into a ted radio hour uh, we'll be talking to you during that program, but uh, I'd really like to see good support for Access Utah. That'll tell me that uh, there is it struck a chord somehow that it's uh, meeting your needs. Of course, if it's not, then I'd like to hear that too. But uh, we're looking for money, quite frankly, to help to pay for the program. It's not an inexpensive program to put together. The number is 1-800-826-1495. Just take a couple of minutes before you get busy on this Monday and uh, tell us you like the program and kick in a bit of money to support Utah Public Radio. 1-800-826-1495 is the number. You know, Tom, as former producer of this program, I know how much work goes on behind the scenes, and I think that our listeners don't even realize all of the time and effort that we uh, put into this program. Again, it's our signature program. We want to bring you quality uh, topics, topics that are important to you. And, you know, behind the scenes, we're constantly searching for topics, uh, looking for ideas, contacting guests, uh, preparing audio. We have interns who help produce the program and help uh, look for topic ideas. So a lot of time and effort really does go into this program. And it's for our listeners. It's for you. We hope that you'll let us know that you appreciate it. 1-800-826-1495. Or you can go online, upr.org. You know, people ask me, what did you do yesterday on the program? And I, I sometimes can't tell you because we're, yeah. we're working hard on tomorrow's program. I know how program. that goes. Um, but uh, we've had some excellent programs. I'm looking on the website down through this uh, Deborah 3D with her new play Underground about uh, uh, excavating ancient Native American ancestral grounds, selling, selling the artifacts for financial gain, and, uh, of course, the case in Blanding in 2009, which was uh, just a tragic thing. Uh, three people committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, World Reading Day, we uh, always like talking books, performing arts for prisoners, Republic of Nature, uh, environmental debt, um, Fobbits. I, I enjoyed that. A novel about the F, the people who stay at the FOB at the forward operating base. They're they're staying behind. A lot of different topics. We t- talked pets. Um, this one was particularly impactful just a couple of weeks ago. Grandmother power. Yes, and that we, was a good one. And we had a, just a heartbreaking call from Jennifer and Vernal to just to hear what she's going through is just one example. So Jennifer, I hope you're doing. I hope you're doing well. Let us know how you're doing. Uh, Faith and Doubt as Partners in Mormon History, Ivan Doig, that was a wonderful uh, opportunity to interview him. So it's a wide variety, and uh, of course it needs support, and now's uh, the time to uh, to do that while you're thinking of it and while you have the phone number ringing in your head, 1-800-826-1495. You know, Tom, that's a great example of the variety of programs that we bring to you on Access Utah, and we also have uh, commentators local commentators who come in and take time 
And we have Thad Box, Gina Wickwar, Steve Eaton. We also play Wild About Utah during Access Utah, Beehive Archive. So we're constantly striving to uh, bring quality to you. 1-800-826-1495. The time is 10 o'clock.